0: You're listening to a message from Third Church in Richmond, Virginia, where we believe we are called together for the renewal of all things through Jesus Christ. To learn more about Third or how you can get involved with our community, please check out our website, thirdrva.org. That's T-H-I-R-D-R-V-A dot org. Thanks for listening. Let's pray together. We do praise you, Father, Son, and Spirit, that you have indeed given us the riches of grace in the person of Jesus, and that truly with him. Even if we have nothing else, we have everything. And we long to know that, to experience that. Thank you that all of scripture bears witness to Jesus and the grace that he has come to give us. So we pray this morning as we turn to your word that you would reveal the Lord Jesus to us, that we would see him, know him, experience him, encounter him, that we might know your great love. We pray in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Please be seated. Good morning, church. Good morning. Uh, it's great to see you. Um, if you're visiting today, welcome. I'm Corey. I'm the lead pastor here at Third. We're super grateful that you're here with us in this fifth Sunday of Lent. Um, I'm super bummed that I won't be with you all next week. Um, during Holy Week, I'm really excited about what we're gonna do for Palm Sunday and Monday, Thursday and Good Friday. Like you heard, um, we'll be in Egypt that week, um, which will be awesome and really would ask that you guys would continue to pray for us on that trip as we share and learn from our brothers and sisters there in Cairo. Um, so Easter Sunday, you heard that we have three services Easter Sunday. Keep that in your minds, 8 a.m., 9.30 and 11. We're doing that because usually, you know, we'll, t- as is typical, we'll have a lot more people here that morning than we typically do on a Sunday morning. So what that means is, if you love to wake up early, um, you could come to the early service. In fact, today, We're talking about um, Jesus's call to take up our cross and follow him and die to ourselves. This is a great application of that message. You could just um, die to your need for sleep. You could wake up early on Sunday morning and come to that first service at 8 a.m. And what that will do is it will open up life for others, open up space and chairs for others. Um, We do expect to have a lot of folks here that morning um, and would love for you to invite people. I mean, Easter is always a day when people are more open to coming to church than they are normally and especially church in a mall. Um, so, um, so would love for you to just, you know, invite God to show you who is somebody that I could maybe bring along with me that would need to be encouraged. Um, so, so I'll see you. We get back, uh, Saturday, early Saturday morning, right before Easter. And so (laughs) hopefully I'll be here. (laughs) If not, Ed, (laughs) it's on you, buddy. I'll send you, I'll send you my notes. Um, all right, we're in, we've been working through the gospel of John. And we've been calling this series, Come and See, because this is a phrase that John uses throughout this book. He's inviting us to come and see Jesus. And he has these wonderful stories about how Jesus encounters people in need. And through these stories, we're being invited to come and see Jesus too and experience and receive something from Jesus, whether it's, you know, the bread of life or the water of life or whether it's healing or wholeness or deliverance or help, that we're being invited by God to receive something by seeing and encountering Jesus. So today, when we come to John 12, um, it's like a big old turn in the Gospel of John, that everything shifts, um, that up to this point, it's really all about the public ministry of Jesus and how he's interacting with and healing and ministering to people. But suddenly, at this point in the Gospel of John, Jesus fully turns towards what he's about to do. He fully turns towards his preparation for his trial, for his suffering, for his death, everything that he's been preparing for at this point. And so the invitation today for us, I think, is still come and see, but it's to come and see something that maybe you don't want to see. It's to see something actually kind of awful. It's to see that in this event of the crucifixion, in the event of this tortured figure on the cross, that we are actually seeing, experiencing, witnessing the greatest act of love uh, in the history of the world. That's what we're being invited to come and see today. And This is an important question for all of us to ask. Maybe you're new to church and you might be asking, you know, what is the death of a guy 2,000 years ago have anything to do with me today? How does it affect my life today? How does it impact my situation today? Well, John would say, come and see. Come and find out. Come and learn from Jesus what he is saying about his own death, his own cross, his own suffering. So I want to look with you today at just three things that I think emerge in this text really about Jesus's death, about his cross that he's preparing for. So the first is this, it's the scandal of the cross. Uh, and then we're going to look at the beauty of the cross. And then finally, we'll look at the, the challenge of the cross. So first, let's look at, let's look at the scandal of the cross. Um, and did I read the text? Did I ever read it? Okay, I didn't ever read it. So let's, <laughs> let, me, let me read the text. That would be important. Okay, let's read together from John chapter 12, verses 20 through 33. Now, there were some Greeks among those who went up to worship at the feast. They came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, with a request. Sir, they said, we would like to see Jesus. Philip went to tell Andrew. Andrew and Philip in turn told Jesus. Jesus replied, the hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. I tell you the truth, unless a kernel of wheat falls to the ground and dies, it remains only a single seed. But if it dies, it produces many seeds. The person who loves their life will lose it, while the one who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me, and where I am, my servant also will be. My Father will honor the one who serves me. Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, It was for this very reason I came to this hour. Father, glorify your name. Then a voice came from heaven. I have glorified it and will glorify it again. The crowd that was there heard it and said it had thundered. Others said an angel had spoken to him. Jesus said, this voice was for your benefit, not mine. Now is the time for judgment on this world. Now the prince of this world will be driven out. But I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. He said this to show the kind of death he was going to die. People of God, this is the word of the Lord. So first, let's talk about the scandal of the cross that we see in this text. So the story begins, some Gentiles, some Greeks, non-Jewish people come uh, and want to meet Jesus. Now, this is a big deal. Jesus is getting really famous. His name is getting out there. Um, He's certainly well-known among the people of Israel. He is both famous and infamous. Uh, Some people love him, some people hate him, but he is a very well-known figure at this point, quite famous. But at this point, he is getting so famous and his reputation is growing so much that his name is actually getting known even outside the boundaries of Israel. It's even getting known among the Gentiles, the people who don't even belong to Israel. They've heard about this guy. They've heard about his healings. They've heard about him walking on water. They've heard about him raising the dead. And they want to know who this guy is. And so they come to Philip and they come to Andrew, who then goes to Andrew, who then says, Jesus, we want to arrange a meet. I mean, that's how. That's what a celebrity Jesus is at this point. He's like a Hollywood celebrity. He needs agents to arrange a meeting with him, right? That's what a big deal he is at this point. So I want you to kind of put yourself in the mind of the disciples, because they've been following Jesus for a couple years now. They believe in this man. They believe that he has the authority and the power. They're in awe of him. They believe that he is the Messiah, that he is the one who is sent from God to rescue and deliver Israel and to bring the political kingdom of Israel back to Jerusalem. They have just seen him ride a donkey into Jerusalem and all the crowds are waving their palms and they're chanting, Jesus, Jesus. Jesus, and they are just loving it. They're basking in it. Like they are so psyched. They're so hyped because like, this is the moment of glory. This is the glory that they've been thirsting for. And Jesus at first seems to confirm that this is what's happening. He says in verse 23, the hour has come for the son of man, that's a nickname for Messiah, to be glorified. And they're like, yes, that's what we're after glory, the moment has come that we've been waiting for. This is like, you know, f- March Madness, Florida Atlantic. Like what, who in the world is that? Like taking out these, you know, these number one seeds and driving to the final four. They're like, this is the glory, man. This is what we've been waiting for. They can't wait to see Jesus get swept right up into the throne and they're going to get swept right into the glory right along with him. And then Jesus just ruins the whole thing. Because he says in verse 24, I tell you the truth, it's only when a grain of wheat falls to the ground and dies that it bears much fruit. If the Bible had sound effects, it would at this point go, like Jesus really knows how to kill a moment, right? Super awkward, Jesus. It's time for the glory, Jesus. I'm going to die. What is going on here? What is Jesus doing? Well, if you've been with us in the Gospel of John, you'll know that there has been this frequent reference throughout the Gospel of John to the time, the hour. Do y'all remember way back at the wedding feast where Jesus' mom, you know, Jesus said to his mom, now, mom, is not the time, is not my hour has not yet come. Throughout the Gospel of John, he's continued to say, my time is not yet here, my hour has not yet come, the hour has not yet been given. And now suddenly here in John 12, he says, Now is the hour, my hour is here, the time has come. It's always been a reference to his death from the very start. And then what's crazy is that Jesus says, this is how I will be glorified. This is how glory will come to me. Jesus says, my glory will come not by riding the praise of men into fame and acclaim, but riding the rejection of men into suffering and death. That's my glory. Jesus says, my glory doesn't come by being lifted high upon a throne for all to see and praise. My glory comes by being lifted up on a cross for all to see and mock. That's my glory. Jesus says, my glory comes not by driving out my enemies with violence. My glory comes by surrendering to the violence of my enemies against me and my own body. That's my glory. Jesus says very clearly here, and the Father affirms it with a voice from heaven that the glory of God and the glory of Jesus is most clearly displayed, not in power and triumph and victory and praise, but in the shameful suffering and execution of Jesus as a criminal on a cross. That's my glory, Jesus says. This is what's often called the scandal of the cross. Leslie Newbegin, a great commentator on the book of John, writes this, that the crucifixion of a man should be the ultimate manifestation of the glory of God is as scandalous to religious messianism as it is absurd to Greek philosophy. Paul says in 1 Corinthians 1.18, the cross, the message of the cross is foolishness, scandalous, stupid in the eyes of the world. That God would be glorified in the shameful death of a Messiah, a so-called Messiah pinned on a cross. Y'all don't sort of sometimes grasp that we've gotten so used to crosses and wearing crosses around our neck. This would be essentially like us wearing an electric chair around our neck and glorifying it. I mean, what is this strange glory? It's so counterintuitive that the shameful death of a Messiah would be the thing that brings him glory. This doesn't make any sense. We live in a world in which you want glory, you go up. You want power, you, you, you grab for it. You want influence, you network with powerful and influential people. That's how you get glory in our world. Your school counselor sat you down and told you if you want to have if you want to have a significant life, you better make good grades and have lots of extracurriculars and work really hard and get in a great college so you can get a great job and make lots of money. That's the path in our world to glory. Every culture. Every religion, every philosophy of the world says this the powerful win. Those who perform get the reward. The spoils go to the strong. But the cross, y'all, it's like a rock shattering a glass window. It contradicts everything you've ever been told. it it turns over upside down, inside out human value systems. I just want y'all to understand this, that if this is true, if the cross is real, if God really did manifest his glory in the bloody death of a man on a cross, then everything that you've ever been told about what makes for a good and wise life is absolutely wrong. Because if this is true, what it means is that the way up is the way down. And the way to get power is to give it away. And the way to happiness is to not seek your own happiness. And the way to riches is to give your riches away. And the way to greatness is to admit your lostness. And the way to redemption is through suffering. And the way to power is through weakness. The way to life is through death. This is a completely upside down, inside out way of seeing the world. It is what we would call cruciform, cross-shaped wisdom. That makes no sense to the rest of the world. The gospel of the cross, y'all. And I especially want you to hear this. If you've like grown up in the church and you're just sort of like, yeah, man, whatever. I believe in Jesus. Jesus died on the cross for my sins, whatever. No, I want you to understand this, that the cross, that the message of the cross is not just like one more religious option in the cafeteria of Religions and philosophies. The the message of the cross is not one more philosophy. It's not one more religion. It's not one more way to live. It's not conservative. It's not liberal. It's not Republican. It's not Democrat. It's nothing. It overturns upside down, contravenes every value system in the world because here God becomes weak and vulnerable. God gives a power. God suffers. God loses. God dies. God says this cross is where I get glory. You know, Sigmund Freud famously said that God is just a projection of human wants and needs and desires. And that may be true for some gods, but seriously, not this one. (laughs) Because nobody wants this. Nobody would desire this. Nobody would even make this up. It is scandalous that Jesus would say that how I get glory is through suffering and death. And that's the scandal of the cross. Have you grappled with that? Have you really come to terms with that? But let's go a little deeper and really just ask, why is God glorified in something as awful as the cross? What is the beauty of the cross that we might be missing? Well, look with me at verses 27 through 28. Very striking. Jesus says this. He says, Now my heart is troubled, and what shall I say? Father, save me from this hour? No, it was for this very reason I came to this hour Father, glorify your name. Now, this is really interesting, y'all, because this is the first time in the book of John that it has ever said that Jesus is troubled. And the word, actually, that is used there for troubled is the same word that's used when the disciples saw Jesus walking in the water and they peed in their pants, right? You remember that, kids? I just said that to try to get you to pay attention. <laughs> um The disciples see Jesus and they are terrified. They are shaken to their core. And that's the word that is used here for how Jesus is feeling, which is really weird because up to this point, Jesus has never been anxious. He's not a troubled or worried person. I mean, this guy is in total control, right? He walks on water. He heals diseases. He raises the dead. He drives out demons. This is not a guy who gets stressed out easily, but here he is trembling, shaken, you know, trembling to the core. What's going on here? Some people might think, well, maybe he's just sort of finally contemplating his death and what he's about to go through, or maybe he's thinking about the pain of it all. But honestly, I don't think so because he's been thinking about his death all along from the very start. And furthermore, many people have faced just as painful deaths as Jesus did with a lot of bravery and poise, right? Um, Socrates, remember that guy? You know, he drank the hemlock. He, he greeted death with, like, total calm. He was calm, cool, collective in the face of death. Polycarp uh, was one of the first Christian martyrs. Kids, get this. He, as they were burning him, and his body was on fire at the stake, he shouted out, bring forth what you will. Why do you tarry? I'm sure he talked with a British accent, too. Um, <laughs> I mean, that's, like, pretty awesome, right? Like, he's dying. He's burning in flames, and he's like, do your worst, ha-ha. <laughs> I mean, many Christian martyrs, hundreds, if not thousands of them, have been brutalized, burned, ripped apart, even crucified, faced their deaths, honestly, with far more poise and far more bravery than Jesus appears to be showing at this moment. So what's going on? Why is he so freaked out? Why is he falling apart? Well, here's why, y'all. It's because Jesus knows that he is facing something that is worse than death. He knows that he is facing something utterly unique, something that Polycarp or Socrates or any Christian martyr, no one in the history of the world has ever had to face. He is facing something so horrible and horrific that it makes even the worst suffering in death look like a mosquito bite. What is it? Well, Jesus mentions it in verse 31. Look with me. He says, now is the time for judgment on this world. That's what he's facing, y'all. He's, he, he's facing the judgment of the world. Jesus knows that for him, the cross, the pain is just the tiniest little sliver of it that what he's truly facing is the judgment of the world. And, and when he says that, he doesn't mean that God is about to bring his wrath upon humanity. What he means is that God's wrath for the sin of humanity is about to fall on him and that he will be receiving in himself the ocean of Wrath against human rebellion in his own body. And right here, just a couple days before his arrest and trial, it's almost like Jesus is beginning to taste it. He's tasting it like metal in his mouth. He's like tasting the first flavor of hell. It's like he's standing on the edge of of a cliff, looking down into the abyss of darkness and despair and horror and disintegration and eternal separation from God the Father, who he's known intimately for all creation. And he's looking down into it and his heart is falling apart. And here's what's wild about this, y'all, is that at this moment, he can walk away. Nobody really knows what he's about to go through at this point but him. He doesn't have to do it. The only person that's been pushing him to Jerusalem is himself. There's still time. He can walk away, nobody will know. And yet, what does he do? He says to the God, the Father, it's time, don't save me from this Father for this is the very reason I am here. Do not save me. Do not save me. Did you get that prayer? Do not save me because I'm ready to die. Y'all, this is what I mean by the beauty of of the cross. This is why why somehow in the scandal of the cross, the glory of God is revealed. Because in this act of Jesus, in in his willingness to, fall into eternal judgment for us is, I think, the greatest act of love in the history of the universe. Y'all know, I mean, young people, (laughs) you need to know this, that love, and the older people here will tell you this, that love is not emotion. Love is not just being carried along with the happy bliss of the feelings of love. Real love, if you've ever been in a real relationship, you know this, that real love emerges at the point where it ceases to be easy. Real love comes at the moment when you have to make a decision to stay, to remain, to commit, to bear the inevitable suffering that staying will involve. Real love is costly. Real love is pain. Real love is suffering on behalf of another. Real love is substitution. That you say, I'm going to, bear this. Even if you can never understand, I'm going to bear this in myself on your behalf because I love you. And y'all, this is what Jesus commits to do here to the infinite degree. He sees what he's about to do. He knows what he's about to embrace and he is terrified. He is trembling. Later in the garden, we see that he is in such emotional distress knowing what he's about to endure, that he is literally sweating blood. Psychiatrists tell us that he is experiencing extreme psychological and emotional trauma and shock. And what does he say? Don't save me. Save them, Father. Don't save me. Because I'm ready to die. This is my glory. So here's the beauty of the cross, y'all. Because Jesus did this, we are saved. We are forgiven. We're here today, a bunch of Gentiles, Y'all know the um, picture of those, you remember our church building? Do you remember that building? (laughs) Some of you have never even been there, (laughs) but it is there, we promise. One day we'll go back to it. Um, But right in front of our church building along Forest Avenue, there are these gorgeous oak trees. Do you guys remember those? Remember those gorgeous oak trees? They're pin oaks, I think. And how tall would you say those are? I don't know. I'm not good at measurements. Mark Sprinkle, how tall are those, you think? 60 feet? Man, I was going to say 200. <laughs> I'm really off. Anyway, 60 feet, still impressive. Just imagine a massive oak tree, 60, let's say 80 feet tall, um, 85. 85 and, uh, but y'all, kids, just just think about this, kids. It's so crazy, right? Have you ever seen how teensy tiny, beady bitty an acorn is? Have you ever held a little acorn like this between your two fingers? Isn't it crazy to think? that that tiny little acorn could somehow become an 85 foot oak tree. How did that happen? Well, the only way it happened is if for that oak tree, in a way, gave its life. It dropped down into the ground and died and was covered and buried. And only because of that seed did that oak tree grow. Many, many, many decades later, we have this beautiful sprawling oak tree to enjoy. And that's what Jesus says here. He says, I am the seed, I am the acorn. If I hold on to my life, if I keep it to myself, then I will remain the only Son of God. I will remain the only child of God. I will remain the only one who knows the love and the embrace of the Father. But if I die, if I'm cut down, if I'm dropped into the ground and buried, then out of me will come. A tree that will cover the whole earth that will envelop all of us in which people of every tribe and tongue and people and nation will be gathered in under the coolness of its shade that we will experience the beauty of that tree only if Jesus dies. Isn't that so beautiful? And this is why it's so just amazing that Jesus says in in verse 32, when I am lifted up, I will draw all people to myself. What what draws people to God? Is it the might of God? Is it the power of God? Is it the judgment of God? Is it the law of God? It is the sovereignty of God. Yeah, all those things are great, but what draws people to God? The love of God. And do you know that millions upon millions upon millions of people have looked at this tortured, disfigured, bloody figure pinned up on an execution device of the cross and have seen in that scandalous image the infinite love of God and been drawn. I've been drawn. We've been drawn. Like a mighty magnet pulling in everything in its force. So many of us have been drawn because there in that scandalous weakness, we see the infinite love of God. Oh, wondrous love is this. Have you been drawn? Have you seen this? That's the beauty of the cross. So we've seen the scandal of the cross, but the beauty of the cross. And finally, one last thing, the challenge of the cross. Because Jesus does not just speak about the cross as a way that he will take, he also speaks of it as a way that his followers must take. And this is kind of hard, y'all. He says in verse 25, anyone who loves their life will lose it, while anyone who hates their life in this world will keep it for eternal life. Whoever serves me must follow me and where I am, my servant also will be. My father will glorify or honor the one who serves me. Now, this sounds a little bracing, right? Hate your life? Jesus wants you to hate your life? Does Jesus want you to be miserable? No, no. This is, a, this is an, a, a, an ancient device that rabbis would use that's called semantic hyperbole. Um, basically, an, an overly emphatic statement to make a point. And what Jesus is simply saying is that just as he is about to choose to hate his life, to lose his life, and it's only through that losing his life that life will come forth for others, so Jesus says, those who follow me, those who want to be my disciples, will have to go in the same path. He's inviting us to join him on the journey to the cross, to embrace these upside-down values of the cross, the scandal of finding our life by losing it. And y'all, this is our call right now, Lent. The season that we're in is a serious call for us to examine our lives and to consider the ways in which you are living your life according to the way of Jesus, the way of the cross, or if you're choosing instead to live your life according to the way of glory in the world. You know, unfortunately, um, study after study shows that there is no discernible difference in the American church between the Christian population and between the non-Christian population in just about anything. Consumer habits, political attitudes, racial attitudes, divorce rates, giving rates, philanthropy. Let me just be blunt, y'all. When it comes to defining the good life and understanding what the way of glory is, there appears to be more America in the American church than there does of Christ. And yet, if we want to follow Jesus then Jesus calls us to live our lives not by the wisdom of the world, but by the wisdom of the cross. And that requires a lot of self-examination, a lot of looking at the ways we're shaped in ways that are contrary to the wisdom of the world. So ask yourself, when it comes to success, when you think of success, do you think of like wealth and a big house and a secure retirement? Or do you think of success as living your life in sacrificial service to others? Because that's the way of the cross. That's the way of glory. When you think of beauty, do you think of sort of all the desirables of the earth walking down the red carpet as we lavish them with our praise? Is that what you think of when you think of beauty or do you think of the poor and the lonely and the lost and the refugee? Do you think of the quartet of the vulnerable? Do you think of those that God longs to protect and shield because that's the way of glory in the cross? When you think of greatness, do you think of like big stages and applause and acclaim or do you think of tiny little daily acts of self-giving and sacrifice in the service of love, because that's the way of glory and the way of the cross. There's a place in 1 Corinthians where Paul says, do not deceive yourselves. Don't be duped, y'all. If any one of you thinks you're wise by the standards of this age, you should become fools. And only then you'll be wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. For the follower of Jesus Glory comes for us as glory came for Jesus, and that is the, always the downward way of suffering love. That's the way of the cross. C.S. Lewis wrote a book called uh, The Great Divorce. Any of y'all ever read the Great Divorce? It's one of his lesser known books. And it's about a busload of people from hell who take a field trip to heaven. Sounds fun. And um, the narrator is one of the tourists, and he has a guide from heaven along the way. And at one point he sees all these spirits coming down from heaven and he sees this gorgeous woman. Her beauty is so breathtaking, he can barely take it in. And and, and around her are these boys and girls and men and women dancing and singing her praises. And he can just see that like, Her love is flowing out of her into them and their love is flowing out of them into her. And it's so much beauty, he can barely take it in. And so the narrator says, he just assumes this must be somebody who's just like really, really important. And so he says to his guide, is is that who I think it is? And the guide says, oh no. No, it's someone you've never heard of. Her name on earth was Sarah Smith. And she lived in a little suburb outside of London called Golders Green. And the narrator says, well, she seems to be a person of very great, in particular, importance. And the guide said, yes, yes, she is. She is one of the great ones. But haven't you heard that fame in this country and fame on earth are two very different things? Have you heard that? On earth, Sarah Smith was a nobody. but When she got to the kingdom, she was one of the greatest women who ever lived. Everybody basked in her glory. She'd become one of the great hearts of heaven. Why? Because she had a vision of life in which she quietly eschewed the glory of the world. And she said, I am going to give myself in suffering love for others as my own Lord has given unto me. And as a result, she became an oak tree. She was glorious. Haven't you heard, friends? Haven't you heard that glory in the kingdom and glory on earth are two very different things. Don't you want that? Don't you want to be an oak tree? Don't you want to give shade to others and to be broad and beautiful and bring life? Go the way of Jesus. Go the way of the servant. Go the way of suffering love. That's the invitation today that you would come and see. That You'd come and see the scandal of the cross. Come and see the beauty of the cross and that you would come and see that the way of glory is the way of Jesus and that is always the way of the cross. Thanks be to God for his indescribable love. Amen. Let's pray. Maybe just for a moment, just respond to the Lord in the silence of your hearts in whatever way you might want to respond. You might just want to say thank you. You might want to name an area of your life where you are maybe living according to the glory, wisdom of the world, and you want to follow Jesus more faithfully. Maybe you want to ask God for help. But whatever it is, would you just respond to him now? Thank you, Lord, that Jesus prayed, don't save me, and because of that, we are saved. He prayed, don't rescue me, and because of that, we are rescued. As we move into Holy Week, would you give us a fresh experience of the wondrous love of God for us in Christ, that we might be those who follow Jesus faithfully and give our lives for others as he's done for us. We pray this in his name.